Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi is reporting live from surf camp in Costa Rica still. Ravi, what's going on this week? Jason, I'm a man of the people, is what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> totally in touch and accessible uh, and relatable. Right now, the big news, I mean, there's so much news out there, but I think the biggest news out there for, for our listeners is just that coronavirus hasn't gone away. It's surging back around the country. The U.S. surpassed 11 million confirmed cases on Sunday. Uh, that's just six days after crossing the 10 million mark. So things are accelerating. And we have around 70,000 patients who are currently hospitalized and a ton of states like Washington, Oregon, California are issuing travel advisories, and even the Republican governor of North Dakota issued a mask mandate. Uh, some governors like Inslee and, and Gretchen Whitmer have uh, introduced even more aggressive measures, uh, including moving towards shutdowns. And predictably, the White House has not really been on the case. And they've, instead of uh, marshaling resources and issuing clear guidance, they're attacking governors who are taking aggressive steps. So the White House coronavirus advisor Scott Atlas responded to Whitmer's announcement uh, with a direct appeal to uh, the people of Michigan saying, quote, the only way this stops is if people rise up, you get what you expect, hashtag freedom matters, hashtag step up. You know, obviously this is in the context of uh, a governor who had a credible threat to her life uh, from uh, similar, uh, from people who, you know, could read uh, a lot into that that message from the White House. So it's a, it's a little scary, Jason. And this is coming at a time when the Trump administration is, to put it delicately, dragging its feet on the transition. Fauci has uh, publicly said that he's concerned that this transition is going to affect our ability to get ahead of coronavirus. How concerned are you right now about our government's ability to respond to this? I'm pretty worried about it. I mean, I don't know that the Trump administration ever really was on the case, but now they've just completely quit on the fight against the virus. I mean, they're just sort of like... It's a mix of it's the next guy's problem with we tried and we failed with we don't really care in the first place. And I think it's pretty obvious that this is going to be, if it's not already, worse than the spring and worse in the way that it's clearly going to happen in a really severe way in more than just the major cities. I mean, Kansas City right now is at a place where New York was in the spring. And yet, at the same time, we don't have any sort of federal relief. And so mayors don't really feel that they can step in and take very serious measures because there's no backup for keeping things afloat. What's crazy about this is when you really step back and you look at this objectively, like when you remove all the political dynamics, it actually makes 
no sense at all that the federal government wouldn't be providing enormous levels of relief right now. The only way to explain it is political dynamics. And what is so depressing about that is that we've gotten to a point where that becomes a really feasible and understandable explanation to a large part of the public, right? Like where people go, oh, well, yeah, I mean, obviously the Republicans aren't going to help Joe Biden save the lives of Americans who are innocent victims. Like, and it's not our fault. It's just simple inertia as to where the culture has gone. But the problem with that is that it puts local governments in this horrible vice because without financial relief, lockdowns will actually close businesses and cause some people to starve. So this thing that they want to say about lockdowns, like, you know, it destroys the economy, it costs, it destroys businesses, it destroys lives. Well, yeah, if you provide no relief. And that's so they're creating that scenario. We were only able to do the lockdowns in the spring because the federal government acted and provided relief. And so it's really frustrating because, yeah, people need to be vigilant. And this is really all local leadership can do right now. I mean, like here in Kansas City and in other places, they are putting in some new measures, but they're not able to put in full lockdowns. And that's the thing. Like leadership really matters because while we need people to just be vigilant, what national and local leaders do do it that guides our actions and it constructs the social framework that makes people do the right thing and feel embarrassed if they don't even if those are leaders that you didn't vote for and don't support that's what creates the social framework around you and gives you the ability to say hey i need you to put your mask back on it's that dynamic that comes from the very top and at the local level that causes you to go ahead and do right i've been thinking about this a lot i saw a meme the other day from a friend of mine who lives in a, in a right-leaning district, and she may be right-leaning herself. And it, the, the meme was, the minute the government starts paying my bills, they can tell me what, who's at my Thanksgiving table or whatever. And I'm like, yes, like, like actually the government should be paying your bills during this period of time so that you can keep your business closed and so that at least we can cushion the blow of some of these other social pressures that we have. Or we can use that breathing room to, to close down certain types of businesses so that you can have the, the Thanksgiving that you want but the politics and the moral part of this are very hard for us because here's where I am right now, which is in a world where we cannot get that relief, I'm very sympathetic to people who want to find ways to keep their businesses open. And I wouldn't want to close them in a world where there isn't relief. So for me, I'm like, all right, keep your businesses open for the most part. Obviously, if you're running, you know, like a, a big stadium or something like you can't, you can't or concert venue or whatever, like that's one thing. But if you run like a CrossFit gym or you run a restaurant or uh, or whatever, like I'm sympathetic to keeping those businesses open, but with very, very aggressive enforcement on mask mandates and a continued fight to bring financial relief to people because we can't give up that fight. But in a world where we haven't won it, Democrats are now appearing to be the party of, let me tell you, your business isn't going to open and you're not getting relief either. So we're just looking at people who don't understand the plight of your business. Yeah, it's, I mean, which sucks, right? Because in reality, we're like, we should provide a lot of relief so that we can, we can lock things back down at some level and save everybody's life and then get the economy back, you know, as a result. And I, I, I've been saying this ad nauseum, but like, I, I can't stop thinking about it, which is, what is the point of being the wealthiest nation in human history if you can't pay the bills for a few months to up to a year? Like, there's no, there's literally no point in having achieved this level of wealth as a nation if we can't use it for this. Yeah. And shout out to uh, the Garish family over in South Dakota who've been sending us good insider information about the governor of South Dakota who appears to be acting 
far more irresponsibly than than the neighboring governor of North Dakota. So the governor of South Dakota has been aggressively pushing back against any mask mandate, says that she would ignore Biden administration requirements, uh, mask mandates, and then has been appearing at major sporting events and on university campuses where masks are mandated and not wearing a mask. Democrats are the party right now who are saying, just wear your freaking mask. When people are like, well, what about my business or my cousin's business? Be like, keep your business open. Let's just get the masks right. That's not impinging anybody's freedom. Like, that's silly. Do you know how hard you have to work to create a, a situation in a state like South Dakota where you have a five-alarm fire of coronavirus? Like, it's a sparsely populated, large rural place. Like, I, I did army training up there once. Like, it's a big place with a lot of land and people are spread apart. In order to put them in the situation that they're now in... You have to like work at it, which is what she's done. You know, in as a lot of people know, in my day job, I I, I help run a an agency that provides uh, housing to homeless veterans, and we are looking at expanding into a site in South Dakota. And we just sent a couple of our people up there for meetings, and they were seriously curtailed in what they can do. And I'm seriously concerned about their health in South Dakota, a sparsely populated, in many areas, rural state where the governor has literally just worked to make them a victim of this pandemic at the same level as a major city. Well, uh, that's not the only news of the week, obviously. Uh, Trump still has not conceded. Uh, and his uh, national security advisor, O'Brien, uh, actually acknowledged that Biden, quote, obviously won. Uh, and kudos, at least the national security advisor appears to have said he's going to smooth, uh, have a smooth transition, at least within the NSA. But that's not uh, a pattern of behavior that's shared across the Trump administration. So, you know, perhaps one of the most important people uh, as it relates to transition is Emily Murphy, who's the top GSA official who's charged with greenlighting the transition. And for people who don't know a lot about this, there are things like security clearances and access to information uh, to smooth things over, you know, things like where are our nuclear weapons? How do we safeguard them? You know, like just small stuff like that. Um, And she... uh, not only will not, I can't even get through this without laughing. It's not it's, funny, but it's just no, so it's, fun. You got to have some gallows yeah. humor about the whole thing. She won't green light the transition, but she was caught applying for new jobs. So is is acknowledging in her private behavior that this is over and the music is stopping, but refuses to green light the transition. So, so Emily Murphy's next career is more important than where we keep our nuclear weapons and ensuring that they are safe. <laughs> so you were right, uh, and you know about this this sense that like Trump isn't going to successfully pull off a coup. It doesn't look like he's going to get that. And Trump's lawyer, James Bopp, uh, withdrew four lawsuits uh, just over the past week. Awesome, awesome name, yeah, by yeah. the way, Jim Bopp. <laughs> lots of good jokes. Crooked hey, Media get, made a lot of funny get my lawyer about. Jim Bopp on the phone. Like, <laughs> it's like a Hanson like, song. It's, if that dude were your yeah, if that dude were your lawyer, would you ever call him Jim or James? No, you'd call him Jim Bopp. Like. Well, the, the background is people went after the like some of these um, efforts to hold the Trump administration people accountable. But I think at least in part, some of these law firms were feeling the pressure and decided not to represent these frivolous lawsuits. But the short version is Trump is now. Well, I think- well because because as as you know, like there is actually there are ethics laws and rules within the practice that you're you're actually not allowed to file fully frivolous lawsuits like you can be sanctioned for it and so yeah, yeah people sure. may not know that trump appears to now be last time i checked one for 24 
in court. He's kind of the Cleveland Browns of uh, legal oh, challenges oh. to this election. Sorry, same. Oh, my 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 buddy Scuba, who listens to the pod, is yeah. Same. Poor, by the way, the Garish family in South Dakota, who I shouted out earlier, are also Browns fans. So they're going to be happy for a second, and then I'm going to get some hate <laughs> mail. But uh, so it's becoming clear that you're right that Trump probably doesn't have the uh, capability to pull off a true coup, but he does appear to be successfully. Uh, slowing down slash sabotaging the handoff uh, to a Biden presidency and and working really hard to make Biden appear illegitimate. Uh, this is going to be a shorter, more disorganized handover uh, combined with like a lot of trouble confirming uh, key administration officials. It's like uh, almost certain um, unless we we do the job in Georgia that we're going to have interims all over the place. It's frustrating and scary. Uh, what should our listeners be doing right now? I, I, I think we need one of those focus on what you can control pep talks, Jason. What do you got for us? I'm going to do that. But first, I want to sort of illuminate for people why the transition is so important and why having the amount of time matters so much. So when, when I was Secretary of State, and so obviously this is by analogy, right? Like, like the Secretary of State's office in Missouri uh, it's a big office by Secretary of State standards. It's about 250 people. The budget is tens of millions of dollars. But it's not the whole federal government, right? And we won our election in November 2012. We took office in mid-January of uh, 13. And in that period, Abe Rakov, my chief of staff, and I, we scrambled to get that office ready. And even after we got in, we still had a few people left to put in place. We still had some holes to fill. For the Secretary of State of Missouri, right? This is the federal government. And as you said, issues like nuclear weapons to consider. So it's a huge deal. And yes, we have to focus on what we control, what we can control. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I'm going to amend it and say, we also need to start at every opportunity, making it clear as much as possible, how much of this disaster, the transition how much of this Trump owns so that in the coming months when there are bumpy moments and hiccups and there there will be in the first few months after you know the handover after they officially hand the keys to Biden um, that could be rough in a few ways because of this transition period and we need to continually remind people of what's happening while you know, still making calls into Georgia while still donating money to the Georgia Senate races, which are very winnable, by the way. So we have to kind of do both because we got to make sure that that's not an out of left field explanation for what will be some challenging moments in the coming months after the transition. Hey, Jason, you know what I miss most being that I've been on the road here for two weeks? I don't know. You tell me. My Helix mattress. Uh, I miss ah, that I should have known that Lux midnight mattress. I've been missing that mattress ever since I've been here because I just have to use the same mattress other people have. And that's just not how I live my life anymore, Jason. That's right. Like you're you're in the elite podcasting space. I mean, the, the same space our listeners can enjoy. And so you're like, man, I don't want to have to sleep on this mattress that isn't specially made for me. I get it. I get it. It's like once your TSA pre-check and then you, you didn't get your pre-check number and you're like, oh my God. And you just want to tell everybody else in line with you like, hey, usually I don't have to stand here with the rest of you. I get it. I understand. To get the mattress that's perfect for you listeners, take the super quick Helix sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to get the perfect mattress for you. For instance, I wanted a medium firm feel and I sleep on my side. So I was matched to the Midnight Lux, but that's just me. Uh, and it's also you, Jason. I think you got the same one. 
That's right. Yeah, and Helix knows that everybody's unique. And so there's a different mattress models to choose from that cater to exactly what you like. After you've taken that quiz and you've been matched to your dream mattress, you can add on sheets and pillows or whatever else you need, and it's all shipped right to your door. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine, which, you know, no coincidence, Ravi and I were named as some of the best dressed by GQ and oddly by Wired Magazine. So... Of course, we would go with the mattress recommendation that they make. Uh, so you just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it yeah. out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but of course you will. And Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. 80 million men and women in the U.S. experience thinning hair, yet it's still not openly talked about, which can make going through it feel scary and stressful, and that just adds to the problem. It's not just genetics. Many factors that you can control play a role in hair growth like stress and hormones. Nutrafol targets multiple root causes of thinning hair at once. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow hair as strong as you are, and it's physician-formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. In clinical studies, Nutrafol users saw thicker, stronger hair growth in three to six months. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. When you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free and you can pause or cancel anytime. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code M54 to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. Plus, you'll get free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code M54, their best offer anywhere. 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code M54 for hair as strong as you are. Let's talk about uh, some lighter subjects. This is uh, one of our first post-election quarantine corners. Jason, what have you, anything you've been doing that you weren't able to do because you were so focused on the election? Uh, I have been able to get a bunch of writing done, and uh, I'm really excited that uh, I just signed a book deal. Well, congrats. I knew this because we talked about it, but um, I'm so glad you announced it on here. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah, I'm pumped. Thanks. It's been really fun uh, to the subject matter uh, has not been the easiest thing to write about. As you know, I, I, I'm basically writing a memoir of, of post-traumatic growth, but it's also at times been really fun because there's some really funny things that have happened over the last couple of years. And and it's also nice to go back and revisit like where I started and, and where I am now. And so, yeah, I just I just signed the deal. And uh, now I get to keep working on the book, which is really exciting for me because I find a lot of value as I know you do too, in having an ongoing project. And so I'm, I'm excited for this book to come out in a year or so because I think it's going to help a lot of people. But I'm equally, if not more excited, for the process of just putting it together and, and creating it. Yeah, and for listeners, I got a chance to read the excerpt that you sent uh, to get the deal. And it was so good. And I'm not just saying this because we're, we're you know pod brothers, but 
it was so good that I delayed my my um, trip to go watch the Bills game, which I, I I mean something dramatic has to happen to get me to be late to watch the game. High praise when you told me. No, that. but it was great. Like, oh, You're really t- vulnerable. Well. Uh, in those early pages, um, excellent writer, great storyteller, and you know I hate political memoirs, and I think me this too. is a book that I wouldn't classify as a political memoir, um, and maybe that's partially because you left politics. It is a totally thrilling read, uh, and I can't wait to read the rest of it. Thanks, man. I can't wait to write it. All right, what, what's yours? I'm still here at the surf camp, and uh, <laughs> I'm learning to surf, and I learned this week that uh, I don't like to drown. Uh, I don't like the sensation of drowning <laughs> at all. And uh, I was like cruising last week. like I was making tons of progress. Uh, I was feeling great. I was like, going out out the back for those who like follow surfing. I was getting out there. There's like big waves out here and I was just invincible. And then this week I have like tendonitis flare ups and I'm getting pulled under the waves. And there was this critical period of time where there was just a never ending series of waves and I was just caught in a really bad situation and I kept getting pulled under. And I just literally like in my head was like, this is it. This is is the end of my life. (laughs) Dying at surf camp in Costa Rica. (laughs) It's like terrible. And I looked over to my surf coach who's just chill. And he's just like, relax. And I just like couldn't <laughs> relax. But I think the biggest thing is all in my head. Like I, once you get that experience where you're getting pulled under a couple of times in a row, you have to kind of conquer your fear. And so later today, I'm going back out. The waves are pretty big today. I'm going back out and I'm just going to get hit by waves and just relax while getting hit by them basically is my well, goal. Don't drown because people seem to really like the podcast and I, <laughs> I don't think I'll go find a new co-host. So also, you know, for other reasons. But. Speaking of choppy waters, there has been nice. a, <laughs> there has been, nice. there has been a ongoing discussion over the past few weeks about the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, people like Congresswoman AOC and David Shore and uh, Congresswoman Spanberger, um, New York Times and Atlantic and New York Magazine and just everybody's weighing in about what this past election means for the Democratic Party. Jason, I I know that it might be a little early, but I wanted to get um, uh, an updated view from you about what lessons you think we, we can pull from the election or what questions we should even be asking. I've been thinking about this a lot. So strap in for a medium sized monologue. All right. One, we have to remember that it's really difficult to defeat an incumbent president. And I think we're having a hard time remembering that because we dislike this president so much that we refuse to allow ourselves to acknowledge the idea that he would be difficult to defeat, right? Like, like I think that there's an instinct to feel like that is uh, somehow granting him some sort of power uh, when in reality, it's just hard to defeat an incumbent president, period. And we did that. And we should make sure that moderates our views as to how drastic we go in, in, in not in, I'm not talking about policy or anything or messaging. I'm saying how drastic we go in lessons learned. And the second thing is a fight like this is the nature of a broad coalition. You know, if you look at any place where there's been a revolution, and I know that in this case, it's a figurative and a political one, you know, afterwards, there's infighting, always, because in order to pull something like that off, you have to create a really broad coalition of, of folks who don't usually fight on the same side. And then they got to work that out afterwards. And then the other aspect of this is that the media obviously 
still feels that they have to be equally critical of the Democrats and the Republicans. Even though we're, we're going through a period when one party is on a daily basis either committing or permitting rampant corruption, stoking racism, and assaulting democracy itself, while the other party is arguing amongst itself about how aggressively we should combat the other party you know, how far we should go in trying to help the least fortunate. It's like an episode of Family Feud, but one family keeps saying that the game is rigged and the answers are false and threatening to shoot the other family. And and there's a disagreement within the other family about whether to keep answering those questions or not. And, and being like, this is the same. Now, I say all that, and then we have to remember, there's nothing we can do about this. Like, you're just shouting into the wind if you complain about the, you know, the, the whataboutism and the, and the both, both sidesism of the media. Again, as I've said before, the most of the voting public among independents and conservatives and frankly among some liberals think of all Democrats as the same. And so people need to stop blaming AOC for us losing House seats that we flipped in 2018. A lot of that was math, right? Like we've forgotten already that going into 2018, we were like it doesn't matter what how great of an environment this is, math-wise, it's really unlike we we flip the house. And then like a month and a half out, we were like, Oh my God, we're going to flip the house. This is what it is to have a broad coalition is that those seats were drawn in such a way that Democrats aren't supposed to win them. So we lost some of them. And if we're going to have a broad coalition, there's always going to be something that people within our coalition say that the other side is going to choose to use against us. And we have to stop going cycle to cycle and candidate to candidate and feeling like that can fell us you know, one thing that somebody says that can be viewed as extreme can screw over a candidate. You know, somebody who says something on the coast that could screw over a candidate, you know, in the suburbs of Missouri, that is not a problem with the person on the coast who's representing their constituency. That is a problem of we have not adequately built up our brand. And that's what this show is about. This show going forward is about helping us make the argument to get more people to be Democrats, to be part of the coalition, so that we're not constantly having to win them over and worry about them feeling ostracized by a member of our coalition who doesn't see things the way they do. The biggest value we have to show as a party is tolerance. And it's almost like we're a sports team where intra-party scrimmages are, are almost more important than the external ones. Learning to have these debates and hash things out is critical to a coalition like ours. If any side of this equation thinks that they have enough people that they can alienate that other part of the coalition and still win, I think they're they're delusional. Let's emphasize that for a second, yeah. right? Because what you're saying needs to be heard by moderates and progressives. Like because everybody wants to hear you say something like that and say, yeah, that's why we need to just be on progressive messaging or that's why we need to just stick to the moderate messaging. And you're saying no, you're both wrong. Yep. And yeah, and this is this is going to be a, a slightly longer answer too, but I've been thinking about this a lot. Spanberger and AOC both said some things I agree with and disagree with over the past two weeks. And I want to kind of use their arguments to kind of set up what I think is, at least the way I'm thinking about this. So Spanberger and a few other members of the House leadership got on this hastily and sloppy conference call and basically said, we can't use the word socialist, defund the police, yada, yada, yada. Now, I understand their frustration, especially as somebody who comes from Staten Island and watched Max Rose get weighed down in many ways by a lot of these arguments and couldn't detach himself from this this story of the left that he wasn't a part of, but that he that he had to own in that election. So that's tough. But Spanberger said, we can't use the word socialist or socialism ever again. 
And I want her to think about how in the world are you going to enforce that? We have a group of people within our coalition who are socialists, and I'm not ready to turn our back on them. I'm not a socialist, but that doesn't mean that people who are socialists, I want them voting third party. I don't want those people um, not voting, right? I want them to feel like they're respected, even if they don't get their way on every issue within our party. AOC got on got on the daily, and I think you know, in a mark of just how talented she is, instead of doing it on a conference call that like accidentally goes on the record or whatever, she just was open and she's like, here's what I think. So I'm going to give her a lot of credit for that. I also want to give her credit for the sense that I am not where she is on a lot of issues, but I do think that her wing of the party and the Bernie wing and the Warren wing has to start getting more and more power for our coalition to be legitimate. Uh, that's just part of the horse trading. It can't be an all moderate coalition because that's disrespectful to big swaths of the coalition that we have. So I want to meet her there. But what I would caution for her, and this is my biggest point on all of this, is that more attention, not just her, but people in general who want to expand the scope of government, more attention to how we follow through on these things. Because she and I live in the city of New York, right, where we have a, a Democratic mayor, Democratic city council, Democratic governor, and nothing works despite the fact that we have the highest uh, tax rate in the country, the garbage doesn't get picked up, schools don't open on time. Before COVID, schools were unequal, bastions of privilege. Uh, NYCHA public housing has rats, rodents, infestations. The subway doesn't work. Nobody wants to talk about this. We have complete control over almost all of those things. And everybody wants to pass the buck. Nobody wants to implement anything. And people notice that. They notice that when Democrats take power, they don't always get shit done. And if we don't fix that, then uh, our whole project of, of expanding the scope of government and taking care of the most vulnerable is going to fail. Yeah, the best argument for progressive values is progress people can see. And, you know, and on this point about like, there's so much attention on this defund police stuff, right? But on the rhetoric, like, what are we promising and what are we not? Not enough on the implementation. How much of a conversation have we had about what's happened in Minneapolis, where uh, there was all the rhetoric and now there's a Democratic city council who's trying to make good on that rhetoric and being honest, like completely screwing it up. And like the, the, the answer isn't, is it right or wrong to defund the police? Is it right or wrong to restructure police departments so that there's more resources going to people who don't have guns to deescalate situations and keep neighborhoods safe and treat mental health and drug related uh, illnesses? The question isn't, do we run on these things or not? It's like, if we're going to run on it, see it through and then learn from it so that we get better and better and better at actually following through on promises. Uh, and then I think we expand the amount of people who support policies, whether you agree or disagree with defund the police. I think we'd all want to see if people are going to run on that and win, we want to see them give their all to try to make it work so we can at least learn whether it was the right idea or not. Well, whenever something like this pops up that is clearly more of a, an aspirational value-based idea, right? Because like it, in a lot of ways, something like defund the police is more of a, it's more of a statement of an overarching philosophy than it is. It's not like a white paper. It's not, here's exactly how this works. It's, it's somebody saying we are, we are providing too much funding to the policing aspects and not enough funding to the public health and social, you know, aspects of it, but to the same end right now. My, and, and to me, the analogy is like, like just last night, I had this conversation with my son with true who's seven, where I said something to him 
like 14 times and he didn't hear me. And then I raised my voice and I said it and he got upset with me and he said, you used the mean voice. And I was saying, but buddy, you, you weren't hearing me the way I was saying it the first time. And so we have to remember that, that, that oftentimes when, you know, really provocative slogans like this are rolled out, it is people who have been wanting to get a message across and to, you know, in many cases, probably previously enact a much more intermittent or, you know, intermediate, moderate, much smaller and incremental level of change and have been unsuccessful and no one's been listening to them. And it results in a much more provocative way of saying it, not unlike a parent after 14 times raising their voice. And so what that means is then we got to back up and go, okay, let's talk about what you really want. And we're going to engage you and treat you with respect. I think we have to learn from this going back, I guess, to the original topic, right, is what can we learn from this is that this thing that has infected American politics over the last two to three decades, where everything is zero sum, right? You know, there is no uh, working with the Democrats or working with the Republicans, because you just have to be beating them all the time. And if you work with them on anything, then you give them an advantage in the next election. We have lulled ourselves into uh, thinking that 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 partisan politics is purely about Democrats versus Republicans, and we're not even noticing the fact that it has crept its way into Democrats versus Democrats and Republicans versus Republicans. And so what we're really saying here is, and, and what I think you're saying is, it's not about, hey, just get along, moderates and progressives just get along, or hey, progressives just, you know, be quiet so that the moderates can run, or moderates, you need to just, you know, accept the energy of the progressives and quit complaining. It ain't that. It's, hey, yeah, there's people within this party you disagree, but just like America itself, for us to move forward, we all have to respect each other and work together. And if we treat it as zero sum, zero is what we're going to end up with. Well, let's give out some awards. And actually, uh, this was unplanned, but I was just re reading uh, through some news before we got on here. And I want to give a, I want to sincerely give some awards to members of the GOP this time, two people in particular. And actually, one, I'm, I'm not sure sincerely. if he's a Republican or not, but... I want to give awards to, to people who stood up at the end of this administration for what's right. Chris. Oh, okay. You're serious. Yeah. Christopher cool. Krebs, uh, who's been overseeing our election security, was just fired this week. Basically, he was fired for saying that this was the most secure election we've ever had and for doing a good job. Uh, he was praised uh, on his way out even by Richard Burr, uh, Senator and Michael Chertoff, you know, two Republicans. And so that was an example of somebody standing up for what's right. And it's a huge badge of honor. I think to to be fired by this president for the reasons that he was, uh, and then there's I think the the person who takes the award hands down this week the Secretary of State of Georgia, but he has been from what I can tell just stalwart and ethical and transparent and and calling BS uh, on his own party and holding on and and our for our country to survive we need people like that and so kudos Brad Raffensperger. Um, I'm going to quickly give out uh, a Lindsey Graham Total Capitulation and Submissal Award uh, to the Minnesota GOP Senate Caucus. Uh, basically, the short version is one of their members got, or multiple members got coronavirus. They sent a memo only to the GOP side telling them that uh, they've been exposed. It's horrendous. I think we all had the, the, the sort of the experience of going to somebody's house or something and breaking something, right? And you right. just have this thought, we've all had it, where you're just like, do I really have to say? And then you're like, of course, that's the adult thing to do. I think the GOP just, just skips over the, the second part of that now because they just, they're just like, yeah, like there's no consequences to not telling people I'm just going to be shitty all the time. 
No, they are the person who comes to your house, clogs the toilet, and doesn't ask for a plunger. <laughs> That's who they are. That's true. They just clog the toilet, and they're like, I'm sure, you know, it'll be a day before they find It's the upstairs bathroom. They'll think somebody, one of the kids did it. That, by the way, is the greatest analogy I've ever dropped on this show. This week for Grab an Oar, uh, following up on last week, I mentioned that I was going to put out a link that allows you to donate to uh, Fair Fight Action, which is Stacey Abrams' organization in Georgia, as well as the Ossoff and Warnock campaigns. So if you go to gasenate.com and make a donation, your donation will be split three ways between those three causes slash campaigns and make a big difference. So gasenate.com. Now, we have an ask of you. Next week for Thanksgiving, we're going to be answering your questions to help you prepare for your Zoom, because we encourage you to do it over Zoom, family dinners. Now, this is the point of the year where you're going to run into that brother-in-law or that cousin or whatever who's going to say stuff about voter fraud and whatever and say masks don't really work. Whatever it is, whatever you're anticipating, because you already know, because you see their Facebook page. You already know what's coming at you. We want to make sure that we are directly speaking to the things that you need help with so that we're as useful to you as possible. So leave us a voicemail like right now, like do it, you know, as soon as you're done listening to this at 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. Spell out for us exactly what you want and assist with. And we will try to provide that to prepare you for your Zoom. Now, to make sure that you are fully prepared for Thanksgiving on Thursday, this episode is going to come out on Tuesday of of next week. So it's going to come out on Tuesday, give you a couple of days to listen and be fully prepared. So leave us a voicemail, but do it soon because we're recording it pretty soon. All right. Now with that, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.